the universe. <laughs> That's 21-year-old Cassius Marcellus Clay reciting lines from his 1963 album, The Greatest. Don't make me a crown, but it's just what I want, a heavyweight crown, because I am great, I am the greatest. Muhammad Ali wasn't always Muhammad Ali, and he wasn't always the heavyweight champion of the world. But in 1963, when he was a young boxer named Cassius Marcellus Clay, he already knew he was the greatest. Ali wasn't yet the larger-than-life figure he would become. The figure who challenged America's racial oppression with wit, spiritual force, and an unimpeachable boxing record. But even at that young age, Ali was in the midst of a spiritual journey that would not only change him, but millions of people around the world. And though he had good reason for braggadocious banter, the person of faith he was in his 20s evolved light years by the time he reached middle age. So much so that by the end of his life, Ali declared, I have said that I am the greatest. In truth, only God is the greatest. From America Broad Media, PRX, and the Muhammad Ali Center, I'm Preacher Moss, and this is The Universal Title, a podcast on Muhammad Ali and his spiritual journey from its Baptist roots in Louisville to becoming the best-known Muslim on the world stage. This is the story of how Muhammad Ali won the universal title. I'm gonna float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. George can't hit what his hands can't see. Muhammad Ali is arguably the most famous athlete the world over. So the fight is over and Muhammad Ali is still the champion. His boxing career boasts three-time heavyweight champion of the world, the first to ever do it. 56 wins, 37 knockouts, and an Olympic gold medal. Six rounds last well, time, Steve, did not tell the world that I had a surprise. He was more than just an athlete. Everyone from around the world knows of Muhammad Ali, not just as a boxer, but as a man who stood firm in his beliefs. Over the course of this six-part series, we'll look at what it meant for the young Cassius Clay to grow up Black and Christian in the segregated South. The times is what makes the difference. You grow up in a segregated world, and as you mature, you start seeing the problems of segregation. It had a lot to do with him becoming a Muslim. We'll track Ali's conversion first to the Nation of Islam, a group that aimed to lift up the dignity and self-reliance of Black Americans. All I can tell them is to join on to their own kind, accept their own kind. But also attracted controversy with his militant rhetoric about race relations. The white media and the government were afraid of the lost-bound Nation of Islam. We'll unpack why Muhammad Ali initially adopted a message of Black superiority and separatism. The preacher in the church taught us that the devil was up under the ground and he'll wait till he died before he burned us up. This white devil in America was worse because he burned us while we was alive. And how the U.S. Supreme Court reaffirmed the religious freedom Ali risked everything to defend. We all must be tested and tried by Allah to see if we are sincere in faith, even if it means face machine gun fire, so I'm ready to die. Ali's conversion wasn't a one-time event. 
it was several rounds of spiritual awakening that enabled him to see the dignity of all races and faiths. All religions are good. I wrote something once. It says rivers, lakes, and streams. They all have different names, but they all contain water. So does religions have different names, and they all contain God and the truth. And we'll see why, after a career decorated in titles and boxing glory, Ali gained the universal title, a symbol of human excellence, a title which went more to him than any other, and for which the world over recognizes as Muhammad Ali's true legacy. I do believe that there was something deeper within him that he was searching for, that he found appealing, that moved him from Christianity to Islam. My name is Wilbur Browning Sr., and I am the senior pastor at Centennial Olivet Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Centennial Olivet is the main church that Ali grew up attending. And you know, I, I would never say that he couldn't have gotten that or couldn't have expressed that within Christianity. I just believe that that the church at that particular time that he was searching had not really evolved to that place because we were segregated. Dynamite exploded on a Sunday morning, killed four little girls in Sunday school, injured 20 other Negroes. The year Ali released his The Greatest album, four little black girls were murdered by Klansmen in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, one Sunday morning. Adam Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robinson, and Cynthia Wesley. But despite the violence against black folks from their fellow white Christians, faith was essential in the fight for freedom. The church was, is where you could be free. It's where you could have a meeting. This is Bob Coleman, Ali's childhood friend. And that's where you got the instructions on what to do, how to do, stay nonviolent. So it had a major impact on everything that happened during the civil rights era. The church was really the key. Because very few people can be nonviolent without a religious background, believe me. You need all the faith and all of that, without question. Cassius Clay came from a family deeply rooted in the Christian faith. His paternal great-grandmother, Mrs. Bessie Jane Alexander Greathouse, had been a member of one of the oldest Methodist churches in Louisville. She had been born in the mid-1860s, while the American Civil War still raged on over slavery. And Bessie Jane remained a positive Christian influence in Ali's life until her death in 1964, the same year he became the champ. And then there was Ali's mother, Odessa Clay, or Mama Bird, as she was affectionately called. Mama Bird brought Ali and his brother to Centennial Olivet Baptist Church on West Oak Street. Reverend Wilbur Browning, who we heard from earlier, has been a member of the congregation since 1968. Of course, the church was really segregated at that time. I would say that it was really kind of a toxic mindset because from Christian perspective, segregation was not a biblical concept. 
But for decades, the, the black church had been affected and infected, I would say, by Western ideologies regarding religious practices. And so it was white church, black church, that kind of thing. But for its congregants, the centennial was in many ways the center of social life. Mrs. Clay, Mrs. Odessa Clay, was very active in the church. In fact, she was the president of what was called the Pastor's Aid during her time here. The church played prominently in Ali's childhood. He sang in a children's choir and even carved his initials CC into the back of one of the pews there. And it's where he was baptized. Baptism is symbolic of our following Jesus Christ and being born again, uh, being buried with him in a watery grave, being raised up to a new life. Ali's father may not have gone to church every Sunday with his family, but he certainly left his mark quite literally. His father, Mr. Clay, had painted a mural over the baptistry. And the mural was a picture of, of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. In churches all over Louisville, Mr. Clay painted biblical scenes. He did Moses on the Mount Sinai, John the Baptist, Jesus rescuing Peter, the Virgin Mary, the Lord's Supper, the Holy Angels, and one special portrait of the crucifixion that Ali once described as so beautiful it made people cry. Ali's deep connection to these works of art gave him a lens for thinking critically about religion. Here's Dr. Cobbs again. When we uh, would be in Sunday school, oftentimes Muhammad Ali and myself and, and a few others uh, would ask questions. We just didn't really uh, buy into the Caucasian Jesus, blonde, blue-eyed story that uh, was uh, popular. But for Reverend Browning, that wasn't the focus. In, in the groups that I had hung around with, in my peer group, we never talked about it being odd to see a picture of a white Jesus. I mean, we didn't make those kinds of distinctions. You know, we believe that God is loving, he's forgiving, he forgives sins, that Jesus is the Son of God. So it's more the divinity that we believed in more than what color of his skin. This brings us to one of the great tensions that many Black Christians face, and which characterized so much of Ali's faith journey. The contradiction that so many African Americans felt growing up in the church. Black um, Americans, African Americans, didn't choose Christianity. It had been given to them, or forced on them, some people would say, by the, the slave owners. This is Jonathan I author of Ali's biography. And yet, even though this was something that had been forced upon them, it was something that, that gave them salvation, something that they could look to for strength. And Ali, by the time he inherits this religion from his parents, I think senses those contradictions. He sees how much it means to his parents. He sees how much um, comfort and joy um, his mother in particular gets from her from her religion, from Christianity. And at the same time, something about it bothers him. Why 
is Jesus white? Why are all the figures in the stained glass windows and in the murals white? And I think that struggle is what leads him to become someone special. You know, he doesn't just accept it. He, he struggles with it all his life and he looks for answers. Ali is not the first Black American to resist the Christian narrative he was raised with. For centuries, Black people in this country may have inherited the Christian story from their slave owners, but they made it their own. Enter Dr. Bloom. My name is Edward J. Bloom. I'm a professor of history at San Diego State University. Many of the songs that African Americans created in slavery talked about Master Jesus. They would use the phrase, Master Jesus. And sometimes that's seen as kind of um, this African-Americans taking in white oppression, kind of internalizing it. But interestingly enough, one of these songs went this way. It said, Master Jesus, he owns me and I own him. And there's a wrinkle to calling Jesus master in a society where white men are masters and African-Americans are their dependents, their slaves. By calling another person master, it kind of disempowers the human master, that there's another master who's above and beyond you, this white human master. Over time, this image of Jesus, the transcendent master, evolves. And in the 20th century, many Black Christian churches developed a theology that saw God as their liberator. And so in a simple sort of way, Liberation theology would say we as a black people are an oppressed people and we are under the laws of white supremacy, Jim Crow laws, and God is going to deliver us from this time of oppression. So that was kind of the, the main theme of preaching in, in the black church during that time. And then there was the church of Mama Bird Odessa Clay. Ali once said that his mother taught him all she knew about God and to love people and to treat everybody with kindness. He said, I've changed my religion and some of my beliefs since then, but her God is still God. I just call him by a different name. Being a Baptist, a Christian did help my dad greatly. This is Ali's oldest child, Miriam, or Maymay for short. He initially learned that through Christianity. And, and my, my, his mom, Mama Bird, we used to call her, my grandma, Mama Bird, you know, Odessa Clay, she was very forgiving, she was kind, she was warm, she was charitable. And when I look at my father and the way he is, he was very highly influenced by Mama Bird's personality. And um, I know they went, you know, back then they dressed up, went to church on Sundays, and that impacted him, the kindness and the warmth and the... the forgiveness within her and, and her charitable spirit definitely had a great impact on my father. As warm and loving as Miss Clay was, 
Their relationship faced some tension when Ali became Muslim and abandoned the Christian faith she gave him. On the same day that Malcolm X was assassinated in New York, Ali's Southside Chicago apartment was badly damaged by fire in a suspected arson attack. A solemn Mrs. Clay gave an interview shortly after standing outside her home. I fear for his life because the condition the world is in today. And uh, you never know what's going to happen when you're in public life like he is. In response to the fire, Ali's mother spoke of her concerns about his membership in the Nation of Islam. And I do wish that he would withdraw from this movement because I am awful worried about him. We raised him to be a Christian and took him to church every Sunday when he was small on up till he got out, you know, in the world on his own. And then he got in this organization, which we do not approve of at all. Ali's wife, Lonnie Ali, witnessed his parents' fears. I can tell you that neither she nor Muhammad's father, Cash, was delighted to know that Muhammad had decided to change religions. They had some real intense discussions about that. And I think they were concerned that maybe Muhammad was joining something that he really didn't know a lot about. I think if he had become a Methodist or a Presbyterian or something of that nature, they wouldn't have minded. But eventually, Mama Bird came around to the idea of it. His mother, I think, respected, eventually learned to respect his decisions and why. She understood why. But I don't know that his father did. We'll hear more about Ali's conversion in the next episode. But for now, what is clear is the impact that his mother and father's faith had upon Cassius Clay. No doubt because of the strong community it offered. The Baptist Church historically is really one of the uh, foundational denominations. That's coming from Imam Zaid Shaker, once a Baptist himself and later one of Ali's Muslim spiritual advisors. It was an institution that provided a lot of uh, solace and comfort in the face of the, the racism and the violence that that racism bred for uh, Black folks in the South. I think a lot of people, their attachment to the church, as was the case in the Nation of Islam, it wasn't necessarily for purely theological reason. The psychological reasons were just as powerful as the theological Ali's friend, Bob Coleman, remembers the community well. Everything basically the teenagers and kids was as a social outing, more so than a religious outing. You saw your friends there, everybody gathered there. That's how, how you got the bonding that went along with being friends in that, at that time. Bob Coleman says that compared to the other kids, Ali wasn't so interested in the religious life of the church. We didn't see a lot of religion in another. We, we knew what boys went to church regularly and had all the lessons done for well. He wasn't one of those kind of people. We don't think he was that into church as much. But it wasn't for lack of interest in spirituality that Ali left the Baptist church. It was rather the sting of segregation that left Ali questioning where he belonged. Here's Reverend Browning from Centennial Olivet. I kind of believe that as Ali was coming into his own as a boxer, that he was probably looking for something that resembled what the church taught, but didn't necessarily practice. And when I think about how it is that Muhammad got from the Baptist church to Islam, 
I'm more inclined to believe that it was a church tragedy rather than a Christian tragedy. The Nation of Islam was much more critical of the white supremacy that infected American Christianity. It's hard to talk about loving white people when at the same time we're talking about them being the oppressor. Ali couldn't stand the hypocrisy, but according to Reverend Browning, that doesn't mean Christianity failed Muhammad Ali. It means some of its leadership did. One thing that happened during the time of his rise to notoriety is that the Nation of Islam really got close to him and sought him out. And that wasn't happening from the church's perspective. The church didn't really disciple him in the way that the church needed to, to disciple him. And so I think that when we as Christians think of Muhammad Ali's life as a Muslim, I think we think of it as a church tragedy. The Universal Title is a production of America Abroad Media in partnership with PRX and the Muhammad Ali Center. The series was written by Precious Rashida Muhammad, along with Ahmed Ali Akbar, Maggie Van Dorn, and Aaron Lobel. Our editor is Ahmed Ali Akbar, Maggie Van Dorn is the producer, and Rosalind Tordesillas is the associate producer. Engineering from Douglas Robertson, post-production sound and mix by PRX Productions, and Sandra Lopez Monsave. Cover art by Felicia Ann. The executive producers are Aaron Lobel, Farah Pandith, and Precious Rashida Muhammad. Support for this program has been provided by the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations, the Henry Luce Foundation, the El Hibri Foundation, and the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates. For more information about the podcast, visit theuniversaltitle.com. I'm your host, Preacher Moss, thank you for listening. On the next episode of the Universal Title, he decided to toss the medal into the river, and of course we couldn't believe it. But now I remember his comment. He says, Bobo, I've been all over Europe, all over the world, Rome, people hugging me and grabbing me, and I come home the country that I'm supposed to be representing and I can't eat. He says, I don't want anything to do with the, the metal. To hear future episodes in this series, be sure to subscribe to the Universal Title wherever you listen to podcasts.